If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empires of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Winograd. So for today's episode, I'm going to dive a little bit back into Romans 13, which I feel like is useful to do once in a while. I have another episode, which I'll have in the show notes, in which I kind of went into my basic analysis of Romans 13. That was an interview I did with John Odermatt of the Lions for Liberty podcast network on his podcast. And my views on Romans 13 developed through conversations I had with the hosts of the Reformed Libertarians podcast, Gregory Baus and Kerry Baldwin. And you know, we talk about this a lot and try to refine our understanding, find ways to bolster that position. But I want to talk about Romans 13, and I'll summarize my or our position again. And I also want to talk about some alternative interpretations to this passage, because not all Christians and not all even Christian libertarians view Romans 13 the same way. And I definitely think it's a good idea to at least consider alternate interpretations for the sake of trying to be intellectually honest and curious and to be spiritually open. And I think that there's another interpretation of Romans 13. There's several out there, but there's one I'm going to focus on that I think, although I don't find myself entirely convinced by it, I think has some merit and some thought-provoking analysis. So, To start out here, we'll once again read Romans chapter 13, and I'm reading the New American Standard Bible. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, let me pause there. There are some translations that interpret that line differently, and I wouldn't hinge the entire interpretation on how we interpret these Greek words, but the Greek words that are being interpreted here. Are and pardon if you know how to pronounce Greek better than me, but it's exousios and hyperechosios, or hyperechos. And exousios means authorities, and the other one, hyperechos, is above. So some interpretations just literally write this out as the higher powers or heavenly authorities. And so authorities could refer to governance or even refer to the state, but I think it is fair to at least think about if this is really talking about those things even. There are, and I'm not going to focus on it in this episode, there are some who interpret this passage to be talking about religious authorities and being in submission to them. I don't think that quite works out when you read the rest. I don't think the religious authorities bear the sword. And so I think that it's a little bit of a stretch to make that interpretation. But there are some people who are rather convinced and who make that argument. Not even people who are committed to libertarianism or anarchism. So food for thought. But 
to continue reading the passage there. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a servant of God. Some people say it's a minister of God, and some translations, to you for good, for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a servant of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due. I'm going to pause here again to say that there is no distinction in Greek between tax or tribute. So we think of tax in the modern sense and automatically attribute that to the nation state. And that is not necessarily what that word automatically means. But also says to pay custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Doing this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let's rid ourselves of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I do find it's interesting that when we're talking about Romans 13, we often focus on verses 1 through 7 and sort of leave out 8 through 14. The chapter and verse editions are really, they came much later. Well, this was written, it was an entire letter. So I don't think that it's always helpful to break out a section of a chapter, especially in like the epistles of Paul, and read those in isolation as if there's not greater points being made throughout the entire prose that Paul wrote. Now, to summarize the view that I espouse on Romans 13, I think that the key verse that needs to be considered when reading this entire passage is starting in verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And then verse 4 for it is a servant of God to you for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, my contention is Romans 13 is not a descriptive text that is describing the state or all governing authority. Rather, I think that Romans 13 is prescribing two things. 
It is prescribing how Christians ought to act, and it is prescribing the norms of civil governance. How we are to act is obviously to pursue what is good. And that's why I think the entire chapter is important to read, because when we go to verse 8, the focus then shifts again to what the Christian is to do, which verse 8 through 10 is talking about how we should owe nothing to anyone except to love them and how loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. And then 11 through 14 talks about how salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed and just sort of a encouragement that in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, that we should behave properly in the day and the night not give ourselves into the flesh, make no provision for it, and put on the full armor of God, put on Jesus Christ. So I think there are multiple things being spoken about here. But in terms of what it says about civil governance, I think that a simple logical analysis would say that if we were to read this as descriptive, we would run into problems because we not only have our imaginations and history, We have biblical accounts that show many instances of states, kings, those acting in civil governance, not living up to what the description here is. And so I think it's not a blanket description of what rulers are, but rather it is a prescription for what they ought to be, what their godly role is. And then it's important to note that many not only fail to live up to that role, but that they distort it and they abuse their authority. So civil governance as defined by Romans 13, and I think this is in harmony with what the rest of the scriptures say about authority. Those who are in authority, that authority is only given for that limited scope of bringing wrath on those who do evil. And it says, it's not a terror to those who do good. So the minute we see those acting in governing authorities using authority to terrorize those who have not done evil, those who are doing good, they are abusing their authority and their authority is not justified or able to be protected by a text like Romans 13. Obedience to them or submission to them couldn't be protected by Romans 13. But we do believe as reformed Christians, myself and Greg and Carrie, and others who share this view, that there is, of course, a biblical role for civil governance, which is the pursuit of civil justice, which is the enforcement of property rights, the wielding of the sword against those who would violate the rights of others, whether that's through theft, murder, rape, or things like that. Then there's the part about paying taxes or tribute, and I think there we're talking about a respect for authority. And people who are in authority if that is their job, we're talking about paying people what they are owed. If someone is performing a service and they charge a fee for that service, you should pay that service. And we should pay to everyone and give to everyone what we owe them. And so when it says we pay taxes for the sake of conscience, this is again instructions for the Christian. It is necessary for us to give people what they are owed. But then it kind of describes this as not just paying tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. And then it goes to verse 8 saying, 
owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So this is saying we should seek to act and live in a way where we don't owe people tributes or really anything. That The only thing that we owe people is to love them. And we could define that in libertarian terms as the bare minimum of that would be to not violate their rights. But we do believe that when rights are violated, that there should be some sort of earthly force that would bring restitution and justice and protection to the innocent who are being victimized. What we have to be careful of here is any moral or performative contradictions in in our establishing what the governing authorities are. If we establish governing authorities that are violating the very norms they're supposed to be defending, as defined here by Romans 13, we have an issue. If you construct a system of governance that initiates coercion, that wields the sword against people who have done no wrong, well, then we have an issue. And that, I guess, is an introductory analysis of what we think Romans 13 is talking about. I could certainly go on for much longer, but I do have plans to have Gregory Baus on the podcast sometime this fall, and we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into this again, as well as answering objections that people have to our particular perspective. But there is another interpretation of Romans 13 that other Christians have made, including Christian libertarians and anarchists, that I think, while I don't personally espouse, I want to talk about because, I, again, I think it's interesting. So in this other perspective, the idea of submission to these governing authorities is not because the governing authorities are morally good, how we would define good in terms of what is morally normative. Rather, it is a submission to them because simply of God's providence in using all things, including evil, to carry out his sovereign decrees. And so there are examples of this in the Bible, right? God used the kingdoms of Babylon and Assyria, even used the Romans in fulfilling his sovereign decrees. And there's even an argument to be made that these evil kingdoms and evil men are sometimes used to punish God's people, and that we see this in Old Testament Israel, uh, used to punish them when they stray away from God. And so there's an idea that you get the governance you deserve, you get the rulers you deserve. And when, when a society strays away from God, the state is used as a response to that. But that this doesn't make them good in a morally normative sense, as in that like they are themselves morally good actors. Rather, it's sort of the opposite. It's the implication that these are evil and oppressive powers, but that Christians submit to them in the same way we would see God's people and Christians submitting to evil powers in the entire biblical narrative. Now, submitting to is not the same as obeying, right? And one of my favorite passages is Daniel 3, Meshach, Radshach, and Abednego, well, they submitted to the punishment. The punishment was for not bowing down to the king and worshiping him was to be thrown in a fire. Well, they didn't like stage a coup. <laughs> they submitted. They said, well, you know, we're not going to obey this law because that would mean disobeying God. So we're going to peacefully submit to the punishment and God will either preserve us or he won't. Christians did this. They would be taken away to jail. You know, if God broke them out, God broke them out. But when he didn't, they would stay in jail. They would accept that punishment. 
And then, again, we have the examples of kingdoms being used to punish Israel. The Romans were used to not only, I guess, like punish the Jewish people, but also used to bring about God's messianic and redemptive purposes in the cross. And so that view of Romans 13 that many hold is not that we submit to governing authorities because they are good. It's rather we submit because God is good. And we trust that God is in control of these human, secular, and evil entities, and that he is using them for his purposes. And we trust that if we are obeying God, if we are living lives worthy of honor and of praise, if we are doing what like the rest of Romans 13 talks about there, you know, if we are fulfilling the law through loving our neighbor, if we are worshiping God and, and honoring his commands and striving to obey him, we trust that these earthly powers aren't a terror to us. Not because like they can't be, but think about, again, let's go back to Daniel 3. Let's go back to the apostles as, as they were being, you know, often martyred and, and jailed. Were they living in terror? Well, well no, they weren't. They, even though they had good reason to be upset and to be downtrodden, they, you know, they could have even in weakness been angry at God, like, why aren't you protecting us? But rather they had a trust in God that wasn't dependent upon the preservation of their life here on earth. Rather, they trusted that God will preserve them, and that includes after death. That means that not that we should seek to be martyrs or that we should be like eager to be oppressed if we've done nothing wrong, but we trust that God is good and that we should not fear that happening. Rather, we should focus on doing what is right and trust God to work everything else out. And if doing what is right, living a life of virtue still leads us to a path that ends in some sort of oppression and being jailed, or that costs us our own life. We still trust that God is good, and we don't live in fear of those things. It's not a terror to us because we have joy and faith in Jesus Christ. Some would even go as far as to say is that although we can view these earthly powers as often sinful and overtly in their actions and in the things they believe being opposed to God, God uses these vessels to carry out wrath on earth and to carry out his sovereign decrees. And so when we do not submit to them, we are, as it says in the beginning of Romans 13, we are resisting God because authorities are established by God. And so who are we to resist those sovereign decrees that God has made? God has willed in his sovereign decree that these earthly powers be the ones who are in power right now. And even though they might be sinful and they might do things that we find objectionable, and it would be okay, I think, even in this view to object to those evils and to you know talk about how they pray for them and to say that they also should repent and that they should serve the one true God and that they should not use their authority for evil, but sort of expecting that they will and understanding that when they do, God is still using them for his good and that our focus should be not on resisting those powers, but submitting to them except in the cases where we are being called to sin or to disobey God. And this is also to be a witness to those around us and to show people that no matter what is going on around us, that we have a joy and that joy doesn't come from the things of this world, but it comes from something that is transcendent of this world. And so I think this view 
although I don't entirely agree with it, what I like about it is the emphasis on what we do as Christians in response to persecution, which I do think is the correct response. I think it is simultaneously our call to point out what is right, to speak against injustice, to speak against those who wield power in ways that are tyrannical. But I think it is also our job as Christians to, to live lives that are not just beyond repudiation, but that are admirable, that, that people would want to emulate, that people see and they go, man, I don't know how in the face of all of what's going on, they can still have joy and that even when wrong is being done to them, they can still have joy and God will either use our suffering as a testimony or he will deliver us from it and that'll be a testimony as well. And so I do find myself in agreement with the spirit of that interpretation insofar as what we are called to do as Christians. You know, I think this works in conjunction with the Sermon on the Mount in Romans 12 and what it says to do with those who persecute us. You know, we are to turn the other cheek and overcome evil with good. So this interpretation isn't even necessarily in conflict with my other interpretation. Again, I think these are sort of simultaneous truths that are occurring here. But I also think that it is not a rebuttal of my view insofar as I would still say that, although yes, we do subject ourselves, sorry, my cat is meowing at me. (laughs) Uh, Even though we do subject ourselves to authorities, even if they are misusing it, right? Governing authorities, we subject, but not because they are morally normative. And I think the interpretation of Romans 13 that I often give is in the establishment of what is morally normative. And then this other interpretation is a focus on the practicality of how we respond to the state and how we are to live our lives and a view that comes from trusting in God's sovereignty. And while I would disagree with Christians who use this latter interpretation and would view that as exhaustive of the text, that would be my objection. I don't think it's exhaustive, but I do think it's true. And I think it works in tandem with the analysis that I gave at the onset. So... That is all I have for today's episode. Let me know what you think of these interpretations of Romans 13. If you agree, if you disagree, I love to hear feedback. And if you have different points of view, you know, I view that as iron sharpening iron. And we're all trying to read these texts faithfully and understand what God's word has for us. And I think we can simultaneously, you know, when we're reading, find out what God is establishing as morally normative, as well as how we are to live as Christians and respond to the different things that happen in life. So as always, if you like the show, subscribing to it, liking, leaving a review is a big help. Sharing it, you know, on your social medias and stuff or with your friends, if you you have an episode you particularly like, is always a big help. If you want to, we always accept donations as LCI is a nonprofit. You can go to biblicalanarchypodcast.com You could make a one-time donation or become a monthly donor of $10 or more to become an LCI insider, which comes with a lot of different perks. You can attend our donor meetings. You'll get some discounts on merch and things like that. And there's a lot of things that, and I should really have this written down. There's a whole list of perks that come with being a monthly donor. So if you go to libertarianchristians.com, 
you'll be able to find out all that information. And I'll have those links in the show notes. So, all right. Well, that is all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be going bi-weekly here in the early part of the fall, just because I have a lot going on. And then we'll go back to weekly, probably like November. So after I've recorded some episodes and kind of built up that storage. So that is all for today's episode. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.